Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. So this is the last in our three-part series about grief and money, sponsored by Inroads Credit Union. When I first started thinking about this series, I didn't realize I'd learned so much about what I haven't been doing in my job. I'm just a few months away from my 20-year anniversary of facilitating peer grief support groups at Dougie Center, and never in that time have I directly asked a child or teen about money. I've asked them about pretty much everything else connected to their grief, but not finances. This avoidance speaks to how it's still super taboo to talk about money, even in an environment where we're actively thwarting the taboo against talking about grief. I'm sure at some point over the past 20 years, I've asked young adults and adults about how finances were affected by a death, but not teens and not kids. So I'm grateful for the conversation I have with today's guest, Shannon Schreckengost, and for how it's got me thinking differently about the work that I do. Shannon was 13 when her father died of a heart attack. While her father was alive, Shannon was very aware of the sense that money was tight in her family. She had all of her basic needs met, but comments she heard growing up let her know that there really wasn't a surplus. When her father died, thanks to his interest in the early days of internet stock trading, her family suddenly had access to more resources. But despite this shift, Shannon's sense that buying a name brand t-shirt could sink her family grew stronger. And this scarcity mindset, it still shadows her, even as an adult in her mid-30s, living in a secure, two-income household. In this conversation, Shannon and I talk about money, no surprise there, and we also talk about what her father was like and how growing up with grief has shaped some of her life choices. So how has this episode changed the way I think about my work? Well, it's got me exploring how the taboo against talking about money still lives in me and how it's made me shy away from asking kids and teens directly about finances and grief, about the worries and fears they might have about what information and reassurance they might need, and how grief has shifted their relationship to financial safety and security. Okay, here's my conversation with Shannon. Oh, and thank you again to Inroads Credit Union for sponsoring this three-part series on grief and money. Inroads is here for you. Shannon, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me. Thanks, Jana. Happy to be here. And tell us a little bit about your dad. I know you were 13 when he died. So what was he like? What was your relationship with him like? Yeah. Talk about a complicated character. Um, My dad was a hoot. He was really playful. Uh, We always had a house full of Nerf guns and loved to have big family battles. Um, I always really looked up to my dad. He was a drummer. And so I I remember when it came time for fifth grade band, I was all about joining up as a percussionist there because I wanted to be just like my dad. And we had drum sets side by side in our basement and would rock out together. And that was always a really great time. Um, But he was a very highly flawed individual. Uh, Definitely 
as much as we had a lot of fun in the household, um, I know he was actually often quite absent. Um, he was very community involved. And I remember when he died, uh, so many people came forward who had so many great stories to tell me about my dad that I didn't even know who they were or really how he knew them outside of what they told me. And that was always really a, a trip at times to feel like so many other people had access to him that myself and my mom and my sister didn't have. I know my mom and my dad had a really challenging relationship and there was a lot of explosive energy at times. But, you know, all in all, I really try to reflect on the fun times and the laughter that I know that we had, but a very complicated individual who I'm saddened at the fact that I didn't get to know more so in adulthood when I would have been able to likely view him on a more holistic level. It's kind of hard for me to answer that because in so many ways, I feel like I, I really have no idea who this man was, but I know he was a really fun drummer and I know he had really great Nerf gun aim. <laughs> That's so true. You know, as a teen, we have this more mm, sometimes one, maybe two dimensional view of the adults in our lives. And as we grow older and become adults ourselves, we get more of a 3D view of them. But having to do that retrospectively really shifts it. And, you know, I've heard that story so many times from teens of like, I went to the memorial service and there were like 400 people there who all had a story about my person that I didn't know anything about. And I'm wondering in the in the years since he died, from interacting with some of those people, was there anything specific you learned about your dad, like an aspect of him or just something that you were like, oh, I had no idea that was true about him? Mm. Um, you know, I think I knew it was true about him. I just didn't realize to what degree uh, he was, I think, really fancied himself a bit of a community servant. Um, he was really entrepreneurial. My mom would say he just couldn't keep a real job. <laughs> he was <laughs> always looking at, you know, needs in the community and how to fill those. I grew up very rurally on Whidbey Island in Washington State, and he went to horseshoeing school when I was maybe in like third or fourth grade because he knew there were, we needed more of that service in our community. And then at one point he invested in purchasing a tractor. We, you know, I grew up on a lot of acreage and that needed to be worked, but he had other people in the community who, you know, were needing that type of big equipment access. So he was just always looking to kind of fill these voids and uh, show up and serve people in these ways as best as he could. He was very active in our church community. I'm um, just always volunteering and the amount that people would come forward with these stories of, oh my gosh, your dad helped me so much this one time in this pinch or whatever. That was just remarkably prevalent. I knew it was true, but I just did not know the significant ripple effect that was having. And, you know, what you just said about the very large memorial service. I mean, that, that was right. Like I knew he was loved by the community, but it was a packed church to the degree that they had to set up additional chairs elsewhere and like project the service so that everyone who wanted to be there was able to you know bear witness and that was just really incredible but also left me feeling I, I think really complicated as a kid because I was just like well this is my dad who are all these people so it's like just very very complicated feelings there for sure you know and then after the memorial service ends and the community goes back into their lives you're left as a teen without 
your dad. And I'm just wondering what it was like, you know, thinking back to being 13 and suddenly being immersed in grief. Mm. I mean, talk about isolating, right? Like it was just such that isolating experience. And as much as people wanted to, I think, rally around me and my family, they did quickly kind of, you know, withdraw back into their daily lives as is natural. Um, and yes, we were very kind of left in that in that space and in that struggle and with that loss and lack. I remember it becoming something that was very like angering to me. I actually, I had been as a, as a teenager, very involved in my church community. And after he died, I really withdrew there because I started finding it so angering and fatiguing. And I know that it came from a good place, but I felt like I couldn't even step into the church without some random person who I didn't know coming up to me and telling me about how much they loved my dad and how much like I reminded them of him. And it was something that I did not enjoy hearing and I found it very, uh, very angering for whatever reason, because they wanted to really relate to me in this loss, but I knew they really couldn't, or even if they could, and maybe they shared their own way of how they could relate to grief. It wasn't my grief. It was my dad that was missing. And sure, maybe they lost their horseshoe they lost their access to a, a tractor. And I know it was more than that to them, but that was where my mind wanted to simplify it to them. And I would get very angry when people would try to relate to me in those ways. You know, when we think about grief, there's like the emotional part and the social part and the community social part that you've been talking about. And then, you know, the aspect that doesn't get talked about with grief that we've been focusing on in this series is uh, money, you know, and finances and wondering how did your dad's death affect your family's finances as much as you could know or understand at 13. Yeah. And it really did affect family finances in a, a very interesting way. With my dad's weird entrepreneurial mind, he was a very like early adopter of the internet. Uh, he died in 2000 and he was really internet obsessive all the way down to the fact that he was a believer in the Y2K kind of conspiracy. And he really thought the world was going to like end with whatever was supposed to happen with the computers in Y2K. Um, <laughs> that's an aside. But part of that was he got really into like early stock investing day trading type stuff online, which I know is becoming quite popular and prevalent around that time. And he um, helped a number of people actually get a bit of like dot-com early stock wealth. And that actually included my family. We didn't know that and to what degree until he died. I grew up very, um, my needs were absolutely met, um, but we grew up very, uh, I think kind of almost poverty-minded. There was a high degree of frugality. Um, we were certainly, we, I grew up on, you know, beautiful land. We were very like, I think land rich, but we're otherwise living in a very frugal way. And I felt a high degree of awareness about money and finances in my household as a kid prior to my dad's death. We did not go on family vacations outside of going to like, you know, visit family in Texas or whatever. And that certainly didn't feel like an exciting vacation. I remember the first time I asked my mom if I could, instead of getting like back to school clothes at Kmart, if we could go to Abercrombie and Fitch, because that was very popular. And she said, I'm not going to spend $30 on a shirt that just says A&F on it. Like that's stupid. And, and we can't afford that. And I was very, um, you know, in my own silly teenage way was very put off by that. And I just felt um, very aware of expenses in our household and uh, that being a stressor and something that limited us. And then when my dad died, 
there was there was money that he had been making in this dot com day trading way that we were not uh, aware of, and that was something that um, you know my mom really kind of leaned into. Okay, we're going to go on family vacations, and we're going to spend this money because we can't take it with us when we die. And I wish that we would have better utilized um, and made more memories as a family together, but financial limitations never enabled that. And so we, you know, we, we don't have wonderful memories of like traveling with my dad and just, you know, the types of things that generally develop for a family, but are a privilege because they do require that type of financial access. So there was a bit of that shift then, you know, when, when he died. Um, I do also know that even though there was that awareness of money, like my mom, she, she had worked very part-time in a local plant nursery, not like a kid nursery, a plant nursery. She had a back background in landscape architecture and she returned to work like more so full time because you know we went from what income he was stringing together in his weird entre- entrepreneurial ways you know completely disappeared and i remember being very concerned when when she did make that transition and just being very fearful of what that would mean for family finances because if we already were operating in a way that seemed to feel a bit hand to mouth you know i i imagined at that age that would only intensify. And how did that awareness or sort of like sense that you had, did it play a role in the decisions that you made about your life after high school and leaving your family's house? I have never been able to very successfully shake that kind of poverty mindedness and frugality mindedness. Um, My partner uh, regularly comments if I am like, oh, I need to go um, buy new jeans. My pants don't fit right anymore. I need to go buy new jeans. I'm probably going to spend like a hundred bucks on a couple pairs of jeans. And I have to like report that. I feel like I need to be like sharing out anything that I perceive as a significant expense, which feels like anything over a hundred dollars outside of like grocery shopping uh, because it really stresses me out. It's a strong anxiety inducer for me, even when I am a person of privilege who does not have to live like hand to mouth. And I do have savings and I'm able to travel and I can certainly afford the jeans, right? It's so hard for me to shake those feelings. And when it does come to any time that I'm just like, okay, I'm going to do this thing that's going to cost whatever it's going to cost. It's, it's very stressful for me. I am fortunate to be in a, you know, a household partnership where I don't have to keep an eye on the finances as much because I have a partner who does that. And I'm actually really grateful for that because it really significantly helps reduce my anxieties around money to not have such a constant line of sight on the dollar amount, which, you know, when it shifts by 20 bucks, I feel anxiety about that, even when I know I'm going to be fine. Um, It's just very, very hard to shake off some of that frugal mindset that I think really just did come from some of those messaging messages of access that I received at a younger age. I wonder too, I've heard some people talk about when they have a parent die, there's a sense that the backup safety net is also gone. Like I'm more in the world on my own. And I know you described your dad as maybe being a bit of a maverick when it comes to secure finances coming in with his entrepreneurship. I just wonder if that played a role for you at all of like half my safety net is now gone or if that shifted like your mom's capacity to be your safety net. Oh, that is so interesting. Um, 
I, I don't think I'd actually really thought about it before. And I don't think that's something that I was hyper cognizant of at a young age or even, even now really. But I think when I look at the decisions I've made, I have always really needed a very high degree of security and understanding as to what my earning is and feeling very stable there. Um, I went to college for journalism and wanted to pursue kind of a journalism career and came out of that right when the state of newspapers, you know, across the country and globally actually was shifting significantly. And it was becoming a very unstable environment. And even though I had just spent a lot of time and money in getting this degree, I was like, I cannot enter into a workforce that is feeling this unstable. And I went a different direction almost immediately. And it was because of that instability of understanding what that earning would look like. And I feel really grateful to have been a person who stayed employed through COVID especially, but I, I know that I looked around with a very high degree of stress of wow, things can really change in a heartbeat. And I did find that to be very, seeing the lack of stability that is a reality in our society potentially and how quickly things can turn on their head. It actually was very triggering to me in a way that I know it is because it was very much reminded me of having that stability of two parents and one of, it, one of them just surprisingly disappearing overnight essentially. So even if stability is a facade a little bit, uh, I really crave it and will do everything in my power to create that for myself to the best of my ability. Yeah, so that growing up in that uh, environment and with that experience of your dad's death maybe has informed where you're comfortable, that's maybe not the right word, of having risk in your life and financial security, stability, job, that's not one of those realms where risk is at all tolerated. Not at all. Yeah, all, all the way down to, I mean, I'm really grateful to have, you know, a husband and partner who is gainfully full-time employed as well. And, you know, I've, I have had friends close to me who have had um, partners who are just like, oh, they're just like not working right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how you could do that. Like, that's so stressful for me to even contemplate. Obviously, like things happen in life and I would want to support a partner through that if, you know, if need be. But um, really having that like double income household is so important to me. And it frankly has also just really impacted my own decision to have children. I mean, I, I do not um, want to have my own children. And in part, it is because I think about the extreme financial stress of that. And I have a high degree of concern and anxiety thinking about the ability to provide and provide that stable, consistent environment. Yeah, I, I absolutely carry on a lot of those feelings of financial anxiety to this day. And I don't want to pay those forward to anyone else. Interesting, right? That the insecurity of how much it could potentially cost to have a child is part of it, but then also not wanting to pass on your sense of financial instability or like fear of financial instability onto a child. And you know, the, this is totally not a question we talked about talking about, but I'm just going to ask you it and you can tell me if you want to talk about it or not. But I was thinking too that I've talked to other folks who had a parent die when they were a teen or a child and part of their decision or consternation about becoming a biological parent or not, or having a child or not, is really around the fear that what if I disappear too for my child? I didn't know if that played a role in uh, in your relationship to that aspect. Yeah, I, I think that very likely has. 
I am someone who, and I've learned this is really common for people who did have a parent die at a young age. It has always been really hard for me imagining myself having like a naturally long life. Like I've just kind of always assumed that I also would have a relatively premature termination date. You know, I I don't, I don't think I've ever had some particular number in mind And I have found that as I age, it does get a little more like pushed out. Like the other day I was making some comment to someone about something about like in my sixties or whatever. And, and then I'm like, wow, I've never actually spoken before about living that long. Not that 60 is even that old, but I've just always kind of had in the back of my mind, like, yeah, I'll probably die pretty young. Like my dad did. I think a lot of that also comes from how much messaging I got from those church ladies of how much I'm just like him. And like how much physically I look and like am like him in his body and it is his body that really quit on him. And so I've just always had this kind of back of mind concern and it doesn't make me feel bad. I'll get the time that I get and I'm out here living it to the best of my ability. I, you know, I hope, but uh, maybe I'll die an old lady in my bed at a hundred. Like who knows it'll be what it'll be, but I have kind of always assumed I would have that earlier date than what may be assumed for, you know, average lifespan for people. And so I would imagine that that would um, possibly subconsciously play into some of those things related to kids. I have not ever thought that I can remember, I can't have kids because I will die early, but I've just always assumed like, yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably uh, ship out from this place around the same time he did. So I, I don't know. That sounds dark. I don't feel that way about it. I don't have like a dark relationship to that. I just want my brain and body to go at the same time. And I want my husband and other loved ones to go on and live in love and not have to grieve too, too much, I guess. Weird. (laughs) Well, it's a really interesting statement coming from someone who's grown up with grief. You know, the idea of like, well, when I have my, what did you call it? Your premature termination (laughs) date. When I have that, I hope the people who care about me don't spend the rest of their life caring grief for me. Yeah. Yeah. I I just the other day attended a friend of mine who's a grief doula. Um, Shout out Emerald Awakenings. Uh, She hosted a really lovely like dinner and we went over kind of a, a, a workbook of what we want to occur when we die. And I, it was something that also could be filled out like I, I could, I should sit and do it with my husband, but I totally just had this mind the whole time. I was like, well, I don't need to do this with him because I'm going to go before him, which I know is probably ignorant and short-sighted. Anything can happen at any time to any living person, obviously. But I just am, I, there's just this locked in idea that like, it'll be me first and it'll probably be premature. And I don't know. Time will tell, I guess. <laughs> and I'll be none the wiser. So. <laughs> Which in a in an interesting way could be part of that. You know, I imagine growing up with grief, there's an aspect of, or there could be an aspect of, I don't want to go through this again. So I'm going to imagine that I am the one that is leaving and I'm out and I don't have to like deal with the, what the repercussions are for the other people in my life in, in quite the same way. That's a very good point. Yeah, I'm probably very much doing a mental like self-protection thing by just being like, nope, this is what it'll be. And I'll never have to deal with that grief related to my partner. And, but yeah, again, I mean, who knows? I do, there is also the logical side of my brain. Um, But I've just, yeah, operated under that assumption of I'll probably go in a similar timeline. So 
I can imagine when I hit particular landmark birthdays, it's going to, it'll be interesting to see how this thinking shifts when I do outlive him. And then when I hit like 45, you know, should I be so lucky? I hit 50. Like, I just feel like it's going to be a little bit of a head trip. I remember when I realized, you know, as a young, younger adult, I started making friends with older people that I was like, I have friends that are older than my dad was when he died. And that was kind of a trip, you know, um, similarly, I remember it, it being, um, weird to realize, oh, I've had more time alive in my life without my dad than time with him. When I kind of crossed that threshold, that was really interesting. So it'd be interesting to see how some of these thoughts and ideas that I've just long held do shift in time. Should I be proven wrong in those assumptions? So speaking of time, going back in time to when you were a teen and your dad had just died, you know, there's, there's ways that in the moment as a teen, you might be like, this is the kind of support I needed and I didn't get or did get. And then there's reflecting back as an adult, like, oh, whoa, you know, the kind of support I needed was actually this and I did or didn't get it. And just wondering, like, what's your sense of what you needed and, and what you received and what might have been helpful that you didn't receive? That's a great question. And yeah, I think only with adult insight and being able to look back, you know, am I able to realize, cause I don't think I was a child like wanting for much. I do know I, I wanted a deeper emotional connection with my dad. And I remember expressing that once to my mom that like, oh, you know, when you drive me to school, I always had morning activities. So I, I, I rarely had to take the bus in the mornings. Like I was in jazz band, um, thanks to my dad's drumming influence. And that was always a pre, you know, pre the normal school day type of thing. So, you know, when my mom would drive me to school, we'd have interesting conversations that were often very personal or emotional. And then, you know, I remember riding with my dad and, you know, he would, listen to his talk radio and we'd kind of sit in, in quiet, um, a little bit of a kind of stereotypical masculine energy there, not talking about the big feelings and what have you. Um, and I remember telling my mom, I wanted to have those types of conversations with my dad. And then he, like the next day was like, your mom says you want to talk to me. What do you want to talk about? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to, you're the adult, like lead this type of conversation. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I don't feel like I, I was getting a high degree of like emotional engagement. And I am also aware that in my household, we were really funny about expressing our feelings, I think. And, and also just having a lot of like normative, intimate connection. Um, and I didn't realize that at the time, but I, I, when I think back, you know, one of the first times I ever remember like hugging and kissing my mom or having her like, you know, kind of kiss me like goodbye was when I got in the car and went away to college. Like I, and that's, you know, not totally standard. Right. I mean, yeah, just not even having those types of like normative, like hugs and kind of kisses on the cheek and, you know, telling people that we love them. That's something when my dad died, actually, there was a newspaper, uh, a regular newspaper feature in our local newspaper called Hometown Hero. And he got like a full page front of the paper, Hometown Hero write up after his death. And the headline of it was, tell them you love them. Because so much of the prevalent theme of that feedback was people didn't necessarily tell my dad how much they loved him. And he certainly wasn't telling us. So I do feel like a lot of that normative, intimate family connection and sharing of those family 
kind of values and developing and expressing like family love just wasn't really happening there. I don't feel I was unloved, but it certainly wasn't communicated. So I wasn't wanting for anything when it comes to food or shelter. And I was absolutely a a very enriched child when it came to community engagement, always being in sports and 4-H and band and all that. Um, But when it came to that, which was free and should be some of the most easily given parental love and expression of it, I was not receiving. And it's taken me a long time in my own adulthood to feel comfortable. And it takes deliberate effort for me to be able to tell the people in my life that I love that I love them because I don't, I didn't really have it modeled. How did that play out? Do you you think when, when your dad died and now you're a teen who's also grieving in a household where it's not as commonplace to be expressing, you know, emotional connection. We were a family who laughed a lot. And my mom would even always say like, well, it's better to laugh about it than to cry about it, which, you know, I think that I value my ability to find humor in all things now that has manifested of that. But I also see the way it is a bit of a defense mechanism. I wish I had been more so encouraged to sit with my actual feelings in that time and space and had had that modeled for me because I do feel like there was always just the kind of almost like put it on a shelf or make a joke about it and then kind of move on mentality. I think about when, you know, we had a number of family members come into town for my dad's funeral and right up until the minute we were walking out the door. I mean, we were kind of playing, playing board games and just like laughing. And, you know, I kind of wish we'd better spent some of that time, you know, maybe really allowing ourselves to sit in what I know was, was grief. And I don't feel like I was encouraged to really engage in that grief space. Sitting with one's emotions was certainly not something that was ever really encouraged. It was like, well, how do we make a joke about this and then move on? And so in that, if your grief was really funneled more into humor and just like keeping it on the surface, how have you reckoned with your grief as an adult out out of that environment? I absolutely find that I am someone who, be it grief or anything else in my life, like it's very hard for me to engage in what I think of as kind of water cooler talk with people. I like meet a brand new person and I'm like, oh, do do, do you believe in in God, like, I, I don't even, you know, I just like want to know their like deepest thoughts. I'm like, well, tell me your darkest secret right out the gate. Cause I'm just like, I don't want to keep it surface. I like really want to wallow around in the depths of my feelings and my experience and shine a light into all the dark corners of myself and others, because that's where the humanity lives, I think. So I want to experience that grief in real time fully and help others to do the same. And I think that sometimes that can almost present as though I like have a drive to wallow in the slop of life a little bit, but like, again, that's where the humanity lives. So things like volunteering with the Dougie center, because I didn't have anything like that available to me when my dad died and I didn't have that space made for me. There was no like, Oh, maybe you should go to therapy or any of that. Like it was just a very, like we move on you know, I know how beneficial something like that would have been. And I just find myself constantly engaging in these types of conversations with the people close to me 
because uh, I I certainly don't shy away from my big feelings or my not so so pleasant lived experiences. And I don't want other people like running and hiding. And I want to establish that safe space for others because in doing so, it only establishes it and affirms it for myself. And I'm just like very desperate to feel that because I haven't always felt very safe in my own emotions. I do know that I have like unprocessed trauma that can be very related to this. Um, and so I, I am kind of creating that space to process because I don't want to be afraid of my emotions and I don't want to be afraid of what are guarantees in life. There's a lot that's not guaranteed and experiencing grief is one of the only guarantees. So one last question for you, Shannon, back with the theme of our episode of grief and money and finances and just wondering, are are there any, you know, if there's listeners out there and they might have a teen in their life or uh, a family friend and that person has had someone die, do you have suggestions for like how adults can or should talk with teens about finances after someone has died? That is a great question. And it's one that I admit I'm almost hesitant to give feedback on because I'm no psychologist, I'm no financial advisor, and I'm sure that there are really incredible resources out there that are actively like coaching on how to do this. So I will just say, I mean, from my own lens of lived experience, you know, I wish I would have received more messaging specifically to, you know, we are going to be okay because I was so concerned about the impact that would have. And if I'd received messaging that, no, spending $30 on a stupid t-shirt is going to be something that is a big financial deal. Well, then seeing that loss of income, I mean, I connected those dots. I wasn't necessarily receiving specific messaging of, oh no, dad died. We're going to be financially ruined. But I just was able to connect the dots of all of the messaging I'd received previously about family finances and seeing, okay, well, that does mean less money. So what does that mean for us? So I think as much as people can talk very frankly about we're going to be okay, you know, if that is the case, obviously don't like lie to your kids. I'm saying be, be very frank about that reality. I do think that people can be so hesitant to talk to children and adolescents about these things that they see as these big um, adult themes, especially those topics that are taboo, right? Finance and money being one of those. I see a high degree of avoidance there. And I think that kids really are capable of understanding. And so in the absence of frank conversation, they will create their own narrative. I do believe that's a bit of what I did. I probably created more of a narrative of insecurity than actually existed, but it has resulted now in even anxieties around finance at 35 when I have a high degree of financial stability and I'm still anxious. So yeah, I'd say just have those really frank conversations and trust that kids can handle, I mean, at least a 13 year old absolutely can. They understand at that point, especially like, you know, I had allowance, I understand money in money out and how that works. Right. So breaking down some of that and, you know, letting them know how it will be okay. Or if there is going to be any necessary tightenings of belts or if a parent's going to have to go back to work full-time from maybe when they were working part-time or not working before 
really explaining like why that is and what the desired outcome and impact that is, um, I think is just really important so that the, you know, kids not left creating their own narrative, which likely will be one of loss and lack and insecurity. So appreciating that. And yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that from the question. And I hate when people ask me questions like, what suggestions do you have? And I'm actually supposed to know because I'm, you know, in the professional, but it you can only speak from your own experience. And it's so powerful what you just shared. And I was thinking about the idea of how important it is if you are having higher level conversations. And I only say higher level to mean like, of the things that are happening, like this stuff is happening, and this needs to change. Da, da, da. And it's like, you got to speak to the reminder or the assurance of the stability of the foundation before getting into the, you know, the vagaries of what's going to be happening up here. So I think about like, if you're coming to someone to say like, Hey, we got to fix your roof, and we got to reside your house, but the foundation is great. <laughs> and then having those conversations with kids to say, like, we are gonna be okay. And we are going to be having some changes in our life. Whatever it is, the, the, whatever reassurance you can offer of like, we'll have a place to live or we'll always have food or whatever it might be, knowing, of course, for some families that might not be something they can offer as, as a constant. Um, but if they can, to like speak to that first before you go to what's going to be different and what's going to change. Yep, absolutely. I think that's that's huge. Yeah, if a family can can say that I understand, you know, for, for me, I was in that position of privilege where my, my base needs were met and they were going to continue to be. So but I think, especially in light of a significant family change, you know, that comes from the death of a parent, then when, you know, all these other life changes start occurring, Oh, mom's not home. And I get home from school anymore. Cause she's at work. So I serve myself a bowl from the crock pot, like, you know, just really talking out those types of shifts as well, because it's already going to feel really scary and chaotic. And like the kid has just no control over anything. Um, and so to really be able to kind of, yeah, speak to that just very specifically, I think will help the the kid feel a lot less like along for the ride uh, of chaos, the, the chaos ride. I mean, this is, we're all living Mr. Toad's wild, wild ride all the time anyway, but at least helps it feel a little less wild and a little more on the tracks. Someone's checking to make sure the safety bar is engaged yeah. as we get on the chaos ride. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Yep. Oh, well, Shannon, I'm so appreciating like your time today and also just thinking of what you'd shared of how important it is for you to be creating places of safety and acknowledgement and validation for those who are having feelings, whatever those feelings are, and thinking about how much you just created that for our listeners today. So just feeling a lot of appreciation for that. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I appreciate it. These are great questions and actually got me thinking a little more about how the heck I find myself who I am and where I am today. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> and listeners out there, I hope you also enjoyed our wild chaos ride of our conversation today. Um, and again, this is the third in our three-part series on grief and money that was sponsored by Inroads Credit Union. So thank you again to Inroads Credit Union. And thank you listeners for being part of our community, for tuning in, for sharing the show, for making it mean something. So really appreciate that. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y 
ey.org. That's also our website where you can find all of our downloadable tip sheets, our past episodes, other resources and information about our grief support services for children and families. And special note, if you are a listener who is living outside of the United States, I would love to hear from you. I just want to get a sense of who's listening, where you're tuning in from, what the show means to you. So again, my email is griefoutloud at dougie.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. 